Have you ever uh, come to the... Killed three hookers in Reno and had to bury their bodies in the desert? No. No, never had that. Security is such overrated shit. Who needs it? It's beyond fucked up. I've I've never seen anything as bad as this. The, The vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. All right, are you ready? All right, here we go. Today is Tuesday, September 23rd, 2014, and this is episode 85 of the Defensive Security Podcast. As usual, my name is Jerry Bell, and also as usual, joining me tonight is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. The show is now almost as old as you are. Yeah, just two more episodes. (laughs) I think I... I'm doing quite well for a man of my age. I would say, I would say. And the flames alongside your walker, it's a nice touch. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, all, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And I will also uh, put in another plug for uh, for iTunes ratings. If you like the podcast, please uh Please log in and uh, into iTunes and give us hopefully a good rating. That uh, that really helps us out. Is actually quite surprising how well that helps us out. So uh, anyway, we uh, we appreciate any love you could give us there. Yeah, the iTunes rating ranking system is apparently mysterious and full of oddness because things seem to jump all over the place. I'm not quite sure how to process that. Yeah, we got two rate two uh, five star ratings in a day, and we were up towards the top. And then the next day, we were nowhere. <laughs> so back back into the bowels of obscurity. It's true. It's true. So, anywho, yes, um, you know we we have we have nothing to really live for except your iTunes ratings. It's it's the only thing that keeps us going. So, if um, you don't want Jerry to start cutting himself again, consider giving us a rating. And I finally stopped. It's true. So, yeah, and they're they're kind of like internet points, you know. Th- those are those those iTunes ratings are our internet points. That's, that's what we're after. <laughs> it's like Reddit gold, but not as useful. <laughs> totally. All right. So, uh, getting into our stories here, we have uh, quite a collection for you this evening. Our first one comes from Ars Technica in. The Title is Senior IT Worker at Top Tech Law Firm Arrested for Insider Trading. So the story is here a 41-year-old IT person named Dimitri Braverman, who we don't actually know what position he played other than he was an IT person at this uh, this law firm. He was arrested for uh, for conducting eight transactions which netted him over $297,000 in profits by apparently, I guess, reading the emails or looking at files. Uh, It's not entirely clear how he gleaned the information, but uh, he did use his access to the law firm's data to understand what was going on uh, with some M&A activity. And and, uh, there... They actually referenced a couple of the companies he uh, he traded, which included Jimboree, Drugstore.com, Epicor Software, Seagate, DealTrack Technologies, Zyratex, and uh, YM Biosciences and Astex Pharmaceuticals, most of which I have never heard of. Uh, but anyway, uh, he used his access to uh, to his advantage. And interestingly, apparently this particular law firm is not uh, not unknown to uh, the insider trading problem. Uh, back in 2011, a person named Matthew Kluger had uh, participated in an insider trading deal that was uh, roughly $37 million in size. And uh, once that person was arrested... Braverman stopped trading, stopped his trading activities for about 18 months, and then then apparently picked them up again. So the reason I thought this one was really interesting is because, you know, we are often 
thinking about the adversary as, you know, the insider being a user or uh, some out, some nefarious outsider, uh, you know, usually of Russian or Chinese descent. Uh, but one of the, in my particular role, one of the things I often worry about are IT people, the insider threat that arises from the, the access that IT people have. And I, I think generally that isn't often given as much consideration as it ought to be. And, and I think, uh, you know, this story and a couple of the others will, will maybe change that opinion. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think this is something that we've for a long time just sort of given a great deal of trust to those who are senior IT folks, and they have a great deal of power to see all sorts of confidential information uh, given their privileges and access on on the environment. There are ways you can build controls and audits around this, but you've got to be a relatively mature organization to have a separate sort of auditing organization that can, you know, watch the watchers. I don't know that a small law firm like this could really easily do that. Uh, you know, it goes back to really good hiring practices and, and decent controls. But at the end of the day, you do have to trust your IT admins to a certain extent. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, it's, I guess it's not always an I, necessarily an IT control, especially in, in these smaller companies. But you know, so, somehow sometimes you have to get creative with how you do that. Uh, and I think it's going to be different in every uh, individual case. But I agree. You know, if you're a if you're a relatively small law firm, you're not going to be able to to uh, to support the or probably not at least be able to support the weight of really onerous controls. But at the same time. If you don't do something, you're, you're you're liable to have this kind of problem going on. Which um, you know, I don't know if this company suffers uh, you know any any financial consequences as a result of this happening, or if it's lost business, or or uh, you know what what negative might come out of this for them. But uh, I, I would assume that they would not want to be. <laughs> Yeah, they and, and other law firms like them would not want to have this happen. So, uh, I'm not, I, I guess I don't have a particular solution in mind other than to say, I think implicitly trusting IT people is sometimes misguided. Yeah, I'd love some more details on this one. Like, how did they detect the fraud? What exactly did he do? What was he looking at? Then we can kind of see. I'm wondering if it was the SEC that detected it or if it was the company themselves. It looks like it was somebody outside because of the way they said they put him on leave as soon as they heard of the arrest. So I'm guessing it must have been an external party like the SEC who noticed it uh, because apparently he was doing this trading under just a relative's name, which, come on, that's pretty yeah, pretty easy to uh, to connect the dots on that one. So yeah, it's an, it's, yep. it's, a, it's an interesting topic that – I don't know that we think much about in the infosec world is, you know, we talk about rogue admins and, you know, of course you can bring up Snowden, Snowden. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody can easily read all the emails in your, in your environment, unless you want to do complete end to end encryption on everything, I mean, there's always going to be data out there that can be abused and used. The question is how much control do you want to wrap around that in watching these folks and how much they're doing? There's, there's systems out there, there's tools out there. Uh, but you've got to then have a staff to look at that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's an interesting one. Not not a simple problem to solve. And and by the way, the the next story we have is kind of similar, uh, although I think we have even less information. This it comes from a website called Finextra, which is a financial industry uh, uh, trade publication, I guess. the uh, The title is Nigerian Bank Falls Victim to Forty Million Dollar insider cyber heist. And the story here is that a bank called Skybank had uh, had an employee, and I'm not even going to try to say this person's name. It's, it's beyond my ability to pronounce. Uh, this uh, this 38-year-old person apparently fell into a gang, uh, which is apparently not the kind of gang that you would find you know, flashing signs on the side of the highway, but rather one that is into uh, into some significant 
organized insider trading. So uh, apparently this person used his access as an IT, uh, an IT person to inflate the value of various accounts. And I'm just kind of quoting in based on what's in the article. And, and also, which I find really fascinating is on the weekends, apparently he let some of the gang members into the bank premises and gave them access to bank computers under the guise of performing weekend maintenance. And, you know, it's, it's not clear exactly what they did or if, uh, you know, which, which avenue was really the, the way the money was stolen. Uh, but apparently while the gang was trying to cash out, they got caught, although apparently not caught in such a way that anybody was arrested, which is, also interesting. Oddly enough, I just got an email about a lost $40 million fortune in Nigeria that I can help transfer out of the country. Hey, that's pretty good. I Clearly legitimate. And then, uh, and then the article closes up by saying that there, uh, there's been no word, despite the headline saying that it was a $40 million cyber heist, there's actually no word on how much money was stolen. So, so yet another example of an insider, an IT insider, uh, leveraging their authority for nefarious purposes. And certainly in a bank context, I think it's pretty easy to make the argument that you, you ought, really ought to have some controls in place that, that are going to manage or mitigate or monitor the, the, the kinds of activities going on with IT people. But, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about relative to this is as IT becomes more and more commoditized, we're drawing, uh, we're drawing a much broader segment of society or broader swath of society into the IT field. And, you know, I, I have to wonder, and this is totally without merit or or anything to back it up but i have to wonder if there are you know if there's an aspect here where in the past people were in it because they really believed in it and especially in the information security world and now it's a job you know it's another it's just another job and so you're you're we're potentially seeing more more criminals that we would have normally expected in the past yeah i think that's fair uh you know i there's obviously more IT roles now than there yep. were in the past. So if you consider the bell curve of people, certainly you're going to get into it. You know, there's also something to be said of the culture in Nigeria, uh, not to get into that sort of stuff, but there is a culture of theft and fraud. Uh, it's a one reason why the Nigerian scams are prevalent. It's kind of part of acceptable business there in some ways. So uh, not that I'm any expert on Nigeria, but... You know, I read a Wikipedia article, so that must be good enough. But definitely a complete failure on this one. Uh, and I think it's something that a lot of organizations on our side of the pond probably have a similar vulnerability to this sort of thing. Without gotten hit for $40 million, that's a huge amount of money. But it makes you wonder. Yeah, I will tell you, uh, Bob uh, has had some experience in Nigeria and... He uh, he agrees with you one hundred percent that uh, there it is uh, it is something of a I, I don't know that it's necessarily a cultural thing but it is pretty rampant there uh, and you know I think I think part of the reason is that uh, it you know forty million dollars in Nigeria is a lot of money and and it is a pretty ridiculous amount of money in fact so. Anyhow, uh, moving on off of that, we uh, we now move into the Home Depot segment of the show. For a while, we had the Target segment. Now it's uh, the Home Depot segment. Now we have the Home Depot segment. and But there's so much juicy gossip that keeps coming out. <laughs> it just, it's like a faucet that just it's, will not shut off. It's, it's, it's like InfoSec turned into TMZ when it came to uh, Home Depot. Yes. Yes, yeah, so our, our first Home Depot story tonight comes from Ars Technica, and the title is Home Depot's former security architect had a history of crypto sabotage, or sorry, techno sabotage. 
I've been reading too much Twitter on cryptography lately. So uh, the deal here is that Home Depot hired a person named Ricky Joe Mitchell back in 2012 to be an architect, an IT security architect. And in 2013, they promoted him to the position of senior security architect. And just a little over a year later, he was uh, in sitting in prison, convicted of sabotaging his former employer. Uh, his former employer was a company named Enervest. And by the way, I think that the story behind that is almost as interesting as the Home Depot story itself. I actually had not heard this story before, so I'll, I'll kind of go through some of the details. So uh, Mr. Mitchell learned that he was going to be fired from this company back in 2012. I do not do not know how. Uh, I'm going to guess that he probably leveraged his access and, and learned of it or, uh, or had a friend uh, somewhere up higher and used while his access was still uh, functional, he remotely accessed their servers and quote, reset them to factory defaults, which I do not know exactly what that means. I, uh, I can impute some interesting scenarios, but uh, basically it sounds like they, he wiped a, he wiped a whole herd of servers and, uh, and, he also apparently, well, uh, it's, the timing is totally not clear to me here, but he uh, he used his access into the office to uh, to to go into the server room and disconnect network cables and turn off cooling equipment, which apparently further destroyed some uh, some equipment and. Uh, the reported damage there is several hundred thousand dollars to recreate destroyed data, which I got to wonder backups maybe would have helped. Uh, and uh, about a million dollars in lost business. And it took, they quote, a month to restore functionality to the office. So yeah, he's, you know, apparently uh, had some problems in the past. And, and I guess uh, going back into high school, he was suspended for three days when he planted viruses on high school computers. And, uh, and so interestingly, he, uh, he got with this, with his background, I can, I would assume, I, I don't know for sure, right? I would assume that there probably was some indication when he got hired into Target, or not Target, <laughs> Home Depot, uh, that, uh, that something was not right. Certainly by the time he was promoted, I would think. So, uh, so this is the first little bit of fail that we're, we're going to talk about tonight. I'm stunned. I, I just, I don't know what to say other than there must have been a massive failure in leadership for this individual based on what we're reading, based on what we know. How did this not come up on a background check? How did this not come up? in just day-to-day interactions with this individual. This was his mindset and his his belief. And how did he end up getting promoted? I mean, he was at a little, for all intents and purposes, a small company in West Virginia. And within two years is running IT security at Home Depot. This doesn't make any sense to me. He doesn't have the background, the credentials, the experience, the knowledge. I'm not trying to be an elitist bastard. I'm just trying to say, what went into the decision-making of the senior leadership to promote this individual into that role? I don't understand. Uh, I, I would, uh, I, I have a theory on that actually. And, and so, so just to be clear, he wasn't run, it wasn't that he was running security. It was, he was the, their senior architect. So, I mean, Oh, well, that's fair. For but. all intents and purposes, he was responsible for, uh, you know, for the design and, uh, you know, I would assume that's what a senior architect is responsible for of their, uh, of their security infrastructure, which, uh, in the end analysis apparently has some problems because we're talking about it here. Um, but I would bet you that this guy probably talked really interesting about, you know, about, uh, hacking and he probably enamored people with his, uh, you know, quote, knowledge of, 
of things. And so I suspect that is, uh, you know, that would, look, I just, I see this a lot, right? People who can talk about Metasploit or, you know, things like that. Executives, especially certain kinds of executives, really eat that up. And I would bet that's at least part of what happened here. But, you know, hey, we don't, we don't know. We may never know. Well, here's the other interesting part, right, in terms of just fail. So his LinkedIn profile was captured uh, on a blog before he deleted it. So take with a grain of salt, right? I can't verify this is his, but if it is fake, it's incredibly well done. So his most recent one, um, this must have been captured in late 2013, Senior Architect, IT Security, Home Depot, Technical manager for all IT security and identity access management projects in 2013. Seven million in capital expenditures across 11 different projects. Here's what I find interesting. What not to do when you're running security architecture. Public Home Depot, or public LinkedIn. 2013 project includes Akamai Kona for WAF functionality, CyberArc privilege identity management, Oracle Directory server upgrade, Ping Identity Manager third-party federation, Tivoli Identity Manager secure identity management migration, Semantic Endpoint 12.1 upgrade project for Windows 8 2012 platforms, Qualys compliance module implementation with additional modules, etc., etc. It goes on and on. Make it stop. Splunk, ArcSight. Um, pen testing lab built out and spun up of new team, which is consistent, by the way, with reports that Home Depot brought their sock and pen test back in house. Um, migration of operational support of identity management used a third party. So if I was doing recon on Home Depot, this guy pretty much gave me almost all the tools they've got in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's long been a pen tester and indeed a, a hacker or I guess malicious hacker uh, trick to, uh, you know, to mine LinkedIn because people do that. So further, he had eight direct reports, two architect, two lead security engineers, one senior pen tester, three uh, resident engineer contractors. And a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. (laughs) Domain architect for IT security space in entire enterprise. Participates as security inspector and architecture review board for all IT projects. So certainly he could be inflating his role here a little bit. But the point being, this to me goes back to senior leadership decision making. If this individual was put into such a senior role to have this much influence over IT security, this tells me a great deal about the senior leadership there and the type and quality of people that they were hiring and promoting and why so many good people left. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a, it's a really good point. Because I assure you, anybody with a clue working with this guy could have sniffed him out within a couple of weeks. Well, I mean, that may be, that may be part of uh, what we're seeing in some of these other reports. Um, yeah, I, 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 just to Just to go back and dwell on it, I think it's, on the one hand, it's personally important to be able to express what your capabilities are as a, you know, as a, as a person to your potential employers. But damn, it, it, it really bothers me very greatly when I see stuff like that. Uh, and it, it just, you know, I know I, we can have the security through obscurity debate, right? Uh, and, and I'm not interested in having that debate, but I just just draw a roadmap for you, for your attackers. Why don't you? Right? Yeah. And not to dwell just a little more on this, but here's the timeline. And just to get this out there for people interested, for three years he was a lead admin and an enterprise architect at Enervest, which he lists as an 800 node network, 800 nodes. From there, in Charleston, West Virginia. From there, he moves to Atlanta and is a lead security engineer for Home Depot for six months. Then he's promoted to an architect for IT security for four months. And then he's in this senior architect IT security role. So, you know, I got to wonder, does that happen because everybody else is bailing? That is a great question. That is a great question. And, you know, 
everybody else is getting shot on the battlefield, so you're getting battlefield promotions. Exactly. Um, before you I know don't it, know. Before you know it, you're the uh, Secretary of Education <laughs> acting as the president, right? That's right. That's right. Thank you for the BSG reference. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what to think. I, I just... I linked this on on Twitter a while ago, and you can you can go Google for this. It's it's pretty telling to look at this LinkedIn archive if it is legitimate. I think it is. It feels and looks legitimate. Uh, they can't but, put things on the internet that aren't true. <laughs> anyway, just we're going to circle back around this, but this again is more damning information about the senior leadership at Home Depot IT. And keeping on with that, our next story comes from the New York Times, and the title is "Ex-Employees Say Home Depot Left Data Vulnerable." And this is a uh, this is kind of brings together a lot of swirling information that I've seen recently. Uh, you know, we've we've said a couple of times, you know, how did Home Depot not Learn Target's lesson. You know, how did they, how did this happen so soon after Target? And what I found really interesting is this article points out that the CEO of Home Depot assembled a team back in, uh, I guess it was in January uh, of his, his leadership to figure out how do they keep this from happening, happening to their network. And so they, uh, they started implementing, you know, I guess they brought in quote, some security experts from Voltage Security, which uh, apparently ended up, ended up selling them some stuff, and started implementing new controls starting in April. However, that kind of coincides with the time that the compromises actually started happening. So, you know, I, I, I don't think the two necessarily related. Uh, however, kind of I think it's more of a situation of too little too late. So, they go on to, this article goes on to point out that a number of former employees of Home Depot have been interviewed and uh, reiterate that Home Depot used a pretty outdated version of Symantec. I think it was, I assume it was SEP11. Uh, they, they say it was from 2007. I, I think that's right if I have my facts straight. Uh, that they did not monitor network uh, network activity such as uh, mysterious servers talking to POS terminals. Uh, they perform vulnerability scans, which are a requirement of PCI, by the way, uh, irregularly, and uh, they scanned systems. I think uh, they said there were a, a dozen or so servers at each store. They scanned them. Uh, they would scan those at a store, but they would only scan a, a small handful of stores, apparently. Uh, and then uh, the one thing that just left me really wanting more, uh, more information, was they. Uh, there's a reference to Austin and Atlanta data centers being scanned, but there were a dozen systems that process customer information which were off-limits. And, and that could be as benign as... Home Depot saying these systems aren't part of the cut, the cardholder data environment. Or it could be as nefarious as, uh, you know, these, these have some really bad vulnerabilities and we're going to, you know, we're going to hold them off to the side so they don't get analyzed. We, we don't really know. And, and, uh, the article doesn't, doesn't give any details. Yeah. When I read that, I, I, I got the impression that they were fragile and they were concerned about disrupting business. So they were not allowed to be scanned because oh. the scan could knock them over. Okay, I hadn't read it that way, but now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Which I see a lot. And it's consistent with the behavior pattern here, which is business comes first over anything else. Yeah, availability is paramount. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing that's interesting is I keep talking about this voltage roll, which for those who don't know, voltage is uh, encryption. And it's meant to encrypt at the, the, the POS and that sort of thing. Here's the thing. They keep talking about, you know, voltage rollout wasn't completed until September 2nd. Or, no, September 2nd is when they found out about it. Uh, the voltage rollout was recently completed sometime in September. 
here's the thing. Once the malware is already on the system, my understanding of the malware and voltage it would have been immaterial. That voltage would not have stopped this problem. Right. My understanding. Uh, and that is a loose understanding. Don't quote me on that, but that's my gut. So uh, it's interesting they keep throwing this out there. If we had a network-borne monitoring, sure. Which, again, if this stuff was being sent in the clear around internally on Home Depot's environment, that's pretty bad to begin with. But I don't know that Voltage would have done anything to stop this attack to begin with, uh, from what I'm seeing. I, I I don't think so. Well, there's there's two ways to play that, right? So so on the one hand, I think you're right. That we talked last week about uh, another story where one of the former employees did in fact assert that the data was not encrypted as it was transiting from the the uh, the POS terminals into some server, which is heretical, right? Uh, and I and I interpreted voltage as coming in to solve that problem. And I, and, you know, again, unless I have a misunderstanding of voltage, I I agree with you. I don't think voltage would have solved the RAM scraper problem. And that kind of tells me that whoever was pulling the levers at Home Depot probably didn't understand the nature of the current spate of attacks, right? Because, I mean, these have all been the same. Most, well, most of them have been all the same. You know, uh, Target and PF Chang's and on and on and on. They've all been mostly the same kinds of things. And, you know, if you're going to go tackle what you interpret as your vulnerability to this problem, and it has nothing to do with the problem, that says to me, maybe uh, maybe you don't have a clue. I, I don't know how else to say it. Well, you know, we're going to talk a little more about this, but there's a quote in here that I think is, is pretty telling. Several former Home Depot employees said they were not surprised the company had been hacked. They said that over the years when they sought new software and training, Managers came back with the same response. Quote, we sell hammers, end quote. Yes. And I'll just throw this observation in here. I have never seen such a dogpile of ex-employees throwing a company under a bus as I've seen with the Home Depot situation, which tells me there's a lot of pissed off, bitter ex-employees who felt very burned by their leadership at Home Depot. It's one thing to say to your folks, we don't have the, the staff, we don't have the budget, we, we can't do that. It's another to treat them poorly in telling them that. And what I'm saying here is that companies always have to make a choice in how much they're willing to spend, how much they're willing to mitigate a risk, how risky they want to be. It's one thing to be risky. And what I see here is not that Home Depot just chose to skirt some of the best practices and be very risky, but they also did it in such an arrogant and demeaning way to their security staff that there's a lot of people from vendors, ex-employees, folks at Fishnet, folks at Symantec, who are more than happy to risk their jobs and their career to come out and comment publicly on how much Home Depot sucks. And that is incredibly telling to me of how dysfunctional and toxic that work environment must have been. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think the takeaway here is it's not just that Home Depot didn't do the right things, according to these employees. It's that they did the wrong things in such a um, hostile way. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Right, and 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 I think that is a takeaway here. If you are running an IT organization or IT security organization, how you communicate matters. And obviously, Home Depot saw massive turnover. Good people left. This isn't that IT security folks are saying to management, either give us our funding or we're going to leave. It has to do with how you communicate those funding choices and how you communicate these decisions that really matters. And the rumors, I don't want to report on rumors, though occasionally I do. Uh, I'm hearing about Jeff Mitchell, who was, we've been talking about R Ricky Joe Mitchell. Jeff Mitchell is the senior guy, the CISO over there. Uh, no relation, by the way, to Ricky Joe Mitchell. Um, I think a lot of this falls at his feet 
in terms of the organizational dysfunction, uh, both from a culture, a budget, and a communication standpoint. Yeah, obviously, I don't have any any particular insight into you know what's going on over there, but I would say that there's something something seriously not right when you have this kind of reaction from so many people willing to talk to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and and you know and on and on and on. Um, I, I think you're also spot on that businesses have to make you know funding decisions and. You know, I, it wouldn't surprise me that, uh, you know, the CIO and the CEO may well, may very well have the discussion that, hey, we sell hammers. I could definitely see that, that kind of discussion happening between those two people. But that isn't something that you say as a CISO to your, you know, your, your underlings because it just creates this, you know, there's the old saying, if if you have the responsibility but not the authority, you are the fall guy or the patsy or whatever, however you want to say it. And I, and I suspect that is how the message was interpreted. Hey, you know, we are the security people and we are saying that we're not prepared for this and you're telling us that, you know, we make hammers, uh, but at the same time we know that when this thing falls off the rails, it's going to be our butts in the sling and in fact... You know, it kind of, that's what happened. And that's not a great way to, uh, you know, to, to keep employees. I don't know if, if there were other, you know, other workplace hostilities or, you know, un, unpleasant things going on. I have no clue. But I would say that by itself is, is, prob- is a little problematic. The other thing we don't know is... Was Jeff Mitchell trying to communicate these risks up, and did he do an adequate job of communicating them in terms of business context? Yep, I don't know exactly. Um, my gut is probably he didn't do a very good job there, but I just can't get over how many people are coming out of the woodwork to, you know, there's a lot of access to be ground here, and there's a lot of angry people. <laughs> who yeah. who are saying I told you so right now uh, about these guys and and you know the unfortunate thing is and and I you know I don't necessarily want to defend the CISO here right but I, I could I could envision the other side of you know trying to play it play it blunt and play it straight you know and and someone th- interpreting. Uh, you know, tr- in- interpreting the, the the cold hard reality of the uh, of business to his uh, you know to his reports, uh, you know, it, as being appropriate. So I, I don't know. I mean, I I I I wish I could tell you some personal stories that I'm not allowed to tell. I understand. I do. Uh, I, I get that, and I think it's one thing to be upfront and honest and direct with your staff. I think that's appropriate. Um. But there's an integrity and consistency issue you've also got to maintain with that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, and, uh, and again, I don't know the guy. I I feel bad for uh, for bad him, especially in this time. I, I his uh, his his world has got to be hell right now. <laughs> I have no qualms. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but I'm just reporting what's being said and wrapping my analysis around it. But fair enough. Um. Fair enough. I uh. I have no qualms. All and, right. Uh, if Mr. Mitchell wants to come on the show and talk, we'll be happy to have him. All righty. It could be exciting. <laughs> it could be our first ever interview on the show. I know. I know. All, All right. right. Clearly, next... I'm making you uncomfortable, so we'll move on. Yeah, I'm uh, squirming around in my seat here going, <laughs> crap, how can I afford the lawyer? <laughs> just, I, just pay, I just paid off the lawyer the last time you got us in trouble. So instead of iTunes recommendations, we're going to set up a PayPal for donations <laughs> for the legal defense security legal defense fund. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Unfortunately, this is well. Fortunately, unfortunately, it's probably not going to stop me from shopping at Home Depot. But uh, anyhow, uh, the, our next story, continuing on the tear of of uh, Home Depot stories comes from also the Wall Street Journal, and the title here is Fraudulent Transactions Surface in 
Wake of Home Depot Breach. Uh, and we don't often see things like this. I don't remember seeing one like this in the wake of the Target breach. Maybe there was such a uh, an article. But uh, essentially, the, the, the Wall Street Journal here is reporting that they are uh, they're hearing from financial institutions that uh, that there is a trend of fraud starting to emerge on cards that have been stolen as uh, you know in, as part of this uh, this breach. There were some interesting comments in in, in this which made me really kind of wonder. So, for instance, uh, early in the article, uh, they mentioned that. Uh, after the after the breach was uh, you know, was I guess publicized or the banks were notified of the breach, they started uh, they started to go on the lookout for fraud, a fraudulent activity on on cards that were used at Home Depot. And I gotta wonder, wouldn't they? I mean, this, don't they always do that? Don't they? Aren't they always looking for fraudulent transactions? Well, okay, think of it like. Uh an intrusion detection system, right? You can tune it for false positive to false negative ratio. Maybe they're just turning up the sensitivity. I suppose. I because suppose. there's a cost, right? Every time you flag it as fraud, you've got a you've got a call center cost, you've got a customer inconvenience cost, you've got a so they don't want to get too many false negatives, which means I'm sorry, they don't want to get too many false positives, which means they probably have a lot of false negatives. Sure. So I'm guessing that they're tuning to catch more and therefore, false negatives will go up. Yeah, I, I would assume that would be the only uh, the only sensible thing they could do. Uh, let's see. I guess the, the the long and the short of the story is you know, there's a there's some anecdotes from a couple of banks about stopping you know twenty thousand dollars worth of fraud, but in aggregate, there's really no no clue yet on how much fraud this is actually resulting in. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is they bring it up that uh, people who use their credit cards at, at uh, Home Depot are indemnified. They're not going to own or be responsible for the fraudulent charges. But I've heard that that's not the case for commercial businesses. So kind of like a commercial bank account that gets robbed, uh, isn't FDIC insured. Uh, my understanding is, or at least uh, who I was talking with told me that commercial credit cards are similarly not protected. And Home Depot, interestingly, has a, has a significant part of its customer base. Uh, you know, I would, what I would interpret is relatively small businesses. Uh, you know, Small builders, small, uh, you know, small home repair places. And, you know, I wonder if, if that is in fact true. I haven't gone to the effort of trying to confirm that that actually is true, but, you know, that, that could be pretty, uh, pretty damaging to a lot of small businesses. Yeah. I don't know. That, I, that doesn't smell true to me. Yeah. I, it might not because be. Because I, I'm just thinking Amex always sort of promotes uh, you know, protection and such, even for small business owners. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's on a card by card basis. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, it's, it's worth checking into. It's interesting. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you know, the other thing is that there's, there's always a ton of debate or well, re- recently there's been a ton of debate around chip and pin and is the investment worth it? And what's the acceptable amount of fraud? And the one thing we rarely talk about, the context that we rarely talk about, is who ends up holding the bag when these fraudulent transactions happen. It's the it's the retailer because usually what happens is the fraudulent charges get charged back to the retailer where they happened from. So let's say uh, you know my credit card because you know I shopped at Home Depot, my credit card was stolen and. Uh, somebody runs up a bunch of charges at, let's say, uh, you know, the gas station. Uh, again, it's my understanding that when I call the credit card company and, and dispute that, they're going to reverse the charges and the bank, or sorry, the gas station is going to end up holding the bag. That's true. And and so it's not the banks. It's not the banks aren't aren't eating most of the loss. The credit card brands aren't eating most of the loss. The 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 company 
the retailer that got compromised isn't eating the loss. Well, I think there's a way that the retailer can dispute the chargeback. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that you know they can they can audit and produce like signatures and such. And I think see this is where we're getting squishy, and and I hate to put out bad info. Um, my understanding is that there is a way for the retailer to dispute the chargeback, um, and then it does come back to the card issuer in the bank. Okay. So we'll have to uh, do some research and uh, and yeah, because figure that out for next time. We could we could be putting out misinformation here that you know we don't want to do that. Not like the rest of our stuff is such high quality. <laughs> well, we try. I know, I know. It was a next joke. Week, that next was a week joke. We'll, we'll talk about Bigfoot sightings. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so that was our last Home Depot story. Uh, yes. And I, but I wanted to I wanted to end on a positive note. And uh, this story comes from CSO Online, and the title is "Malicious Advertisements Distributed by DoubleClick." Uh, and Zito Networks. So uh, the story here is that some bad people have uh, have invaded DoubleClick and Zito. DoubleClick obviously being a Google property and one of the premier ad networks in the world. Uh, they uh, they were infiltrated with some malicious advertisements, and in particular, a couple websites. Uh, were targeted like the Times of Israel, the Jerusalem Post, and Last.fm. I mean, Last.fm, who goes there, right? Uh, okay. And, and uh, apparently the ads were serving up the nuclear exploit kit, and if uh, if it worked on your computer, you would end up with the Zmot bot, which uh, it would probably be the start of many malware problems for you, since... Uh, that's how that's a common dropper for uh, for lots of other stuff. So I think this is a, you know I, and we have not talked about this in a while, right? But the web is a dangerous place. And Shut your mouth! I know it's crazy, isn't it? And it's not it's not the shady parts of the internet necessarily that are you know are where a lot of the problems are. Uh, you know, these are, these are not pornography sites or wear sites or things like that. These are, you know, pretty mainstream kinds of websites. And if you happen to, uh, to go there with, uh, you know, with a system that had one of these vulnerabilities that, that nuclear, uh, would target, you would end up being compromised. And there isn't a lot you can do about it. And to me, it's especially with, uh, you know, the cybersecurity awareness month coming up. I've been thinking about what you know what we want to do there, and thinking like skywriting or something like that. But um, it it's becoming so important, especially for the smaller businesses, to to understand the risk here. You know, and and I see it. We see it quite often. You know, the the, the stories about. Uh, Small businesses having their accounts cleared out because they got a banking trojan, or you know, and uh, and and I see it happening. Uh, I should say, not me personally, but Bob sees it happening to, you know, to uh, IT people a lot, right? Because they just don't have that concept that you should not be doing casual stuff on systems that you are processing. Uh, important, what I would imp- call important workload on. You know, you need to, th- you need to start thinking about, uh, dedicating things, <laughs> whether it's a virtual machine or a separate system or, or what have you, for more sensitive, uh, sensitive activities. And it's becoming more and more important. We're seeing this, I mean, this is how Target got in, or sorry, the attackers got in through Fazio to Target, you know. This is happening more and more often, and it, it, it I'm just not seeing a really big reaction to it. You know, the reaction is like, uh, let's, let's uh, upgrade our antivirus. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things you can do with the browser, too. You could roll out a browser build that has you know, ad blockers that would just hide these frames from even loading. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, mind you, 
The problem is you're fighting the last war, right? So <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is the thing you can you can mitigate for the previous attack and say, well, you know. But that's to use your favorite term lately. That's table stakes, right? You at least have to stop what is affecting other people, and then think about what the next thing may be. But there's all sorts of ways you can lock down browsers. There's all sorts of scripts you can load. There's plugins you can load, uh, and, and I think. Especially in any sort of sizable organization, the IT group, you know, can roll out a stable browser config that stops a lot of this fluff and make sure they're updating Flash and make sure they're updating Java and just the basic hygiene. We're turning off Java. Yeah, well, sure. You know, or or selectively allowing it if they have a business app that needs yeah, it. Di- yeah, disa- yeah dis- uh, disabling the browser plugin. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there's, there's other things you can do, like web filtering at the border and, you know, lots of, lots of other opportunities. But I think that, I guess my point for bringing this up is that it's, 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 in my estimation, is growing in importance. It's growing faster than I see the, the reaction to it. Uh, and, and when I look at a lot of the breaches that are happening that, that we talk about, they have a component uh, of this kind of a problem, uh, manifesting itself in, into something bigger. And, you know, obviously, uh, Bob and I see lots of other things we can't, you know, I, I certainly can't discuss. Uh, and I know that it is just becoming a, a really, uh, really significant problem. And, uh, I'm, I'm particularly, becoming very focused on the IT organization, you know, the concept of the IT organization, because one of the things that I've seen is, um, you know, IT people tend to not think about these things manifesting themselves on their computer. You know, I'm, I'm the IT guy. I'm the, I'm the windows administrator. And I, you know, my, I log in with my domain admin account and I surf the web with impunity because I've got to get anywhere. So I have all the, you know, all the rules turned off on my, you know, for, for my, uh, my IP to get out through the, the web proxy. And, you know, my, uh, my IP address can get to any other IP address in the company. And it's just a recipe for, for failure. So I just encourage people to think about those problems uh and and uh how that might impact you and your decisions so with uh with that um there was one other it's not necessarily a story but it was a uh something that i wanted to communicate risky business is another podcast which is a very well done podcast by a gentleman named patrick gray Uh, last week he had an episode and he briefly mentioned in his news segment that he um, through some sources of his, and, and again, I haven't corroborated this independently, but I thought it worth mentioning because it was uh, it was pretty big news. Uh, related to the CHS, the Community Health Systems breach, which uh, we talked about a couple of weeks back where Dave Kennedy from Trusted Sec announced on Fox News that it was Heartbleed that let the attackers in. So Patrick's new news is that it was not, in fact, Heartbleed, that the uh, the method of attack was spear phishing against their uh, the CHS employees, and apparently CHS's security staff had been playing whack-a-mole with the attacker for quite some time, and uh, they they uh, did have a Juniper VPN appliance, but they patched it very early on, and they don't believe that had any uh, anything to do with the attack. It was apparently all this spear phishing. However, they apparently did have some internal systems that were vulnerable to Heartbleed that apparently may or may not have played a role in uh, the exploit. So, again, sometimes these things are far more complicated than the little bumper sticker we get that's posted out on the on the news. So, this is kind of a, an interesting example. So, assuming it's true, right? Uh the uh, let's see the last uh, the last bit of uh, I guess news or feedback we got from Reddit. There's a uh, I was having a discussion with someone, uh, actually several people, and 
this this comes from a Reddit user called Lone Jeeper. And uh, apparently Lone Jeeper is a listener. So if you're listening to this, hi, Lone Jeeper. And uh, he or she, not sure which, asks a question about the uh, the university context. And, uh, you know, this time we will definitely not try not to upset our university friends. Uh, I I am not covered by that guarantee. Okay. I will try not to upset our university friends. No, no warranties on Mr. Kellett. Uh, right. So, uh, so the discussion we were having a little bit was some of the things we talk about in this podcast are easy to, are easy to envision in the context of a, of a company or maybe even a government where you have you very, uh, authoritarian control. Uh, but in the context of a university, it's not that way. And so he brings up that there's a couple of really problematic complexities in their environment. And he wondered if we had, or he or she wondered if we had any input. Uh, and the first one was their, uh, I guess their dorms, for lack of a, a better word, uh, are filled with students. And the students have to, you know, they can bring in apparently whatever the heck they want. They can connect all of their crap up to the university's network, and apparently the university just has to take it. And and if it doesn't work, then I guess there's hell to pay. If the if the if the students can't get to, you know, the course materials or whatever, that's a really big, uh, I guess, customer set problem. And I got to tell you, that sounds like a bloody nightmare. Um. I mean, at the at the highest level or the lowest level, depending on your perspective, this seems like an ISP kind of relationship with their, you know, their tenants. Um, but apparently, the colleges have accepted a lot of responsibility for the devices these students are bringing in, and I don't know what to say. I mean, this to me it seems like the problem. An expectation problem. Uh, you know, my my advice would be that uh, you know it it needs to turn they need to turn it around if if people want to bring in I I would make the demark to me if if it were me if I were the king of of a, of a university and I, and I guess it I didn't think it was going to run away run off all the students I would make the demark the port at the wall. <laughs> you know, and and you know that's it. You you can plug whatever crap you want into that port on the wall. If you have problems, we'll come out and make sure that that port at the wall works. And if you want to make sure, if you want to, if you're having problems with your crappy uh, D-Link router, we'll you know and y- you know you can. Uh, we've got a uh, we've we've got a a, a team of, uh, of of college people who would be more than happy to come out and help you fix your stuff for, you know, I don't know, 10 bucks an hour, something like that. You know, think, think enterprising opportunities, right? For, uh, for students. I, I just, that's a, it's a really tough one. Uh, anytime I've worked in higher ed situations, uh, you end up basically with a public network environment that, you really just end up with a really dirty network environment that you can harden as best you can to stay resilient, stay up. But most of the time I've seen you try to take all of your staff computers, anything that matters, and isolate them very heavily away from the dorm environment, uh, the you know the computer environment, that sort of stuff, and try to segment and isolate so that you can keep things like somebody fooling around on a dorm network or a lab network from impacting a professor in, you know, the astrophysics lab, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's really difficult. It's, but because of the mandates that they have to have open access and really a lot of the university environments that I've seen, they can monitor and alert, but they cannot do much else. And it is a special breed of IT that is really tough. And, you know, you're just trying to minimize damage. I have not done extensive work there. I have, you know, kind of talked to those guys and done some consulting. Um, 
but it is everything that we have learned to do on the enterprise side is basically taken away from you uh, for most of the enterprise environment. Aside from you can get some staff networks and you can get some sort of corporate networks that are not student accessible, but otherwise... Wow. So I've seen a lot of times where they will kind of almost act like an ISP, where they will do things like alert when they think you've got a bot, you know, that sort of stuff, uh, you know, three strikes, you're out kind of laws, but it's really tough. And, and, you know, especially when you start talking about professors and that sort of thing that are, uh, you know, almost above the law in the university environments, you're in a no-win scenario there. You're just trying to stay ahead of the flood of crap. Uh, trying to keep everything up and running. So uh, I think those guys have a, a tough job and, and, you know, they probably learn really quickly how to keep their network up and running in a very dirty environment. But I think trying to stop or prevent is, is almost impossible. I think at that point, all you can do really is alert rapidly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you obviously can't, you really have no hope of keeping unauthorized devices off your network because there's really no context. There's really no concept of an unauthorized device. You have no, the, the whole, the whole idea of NAC just goes out the window. Um, you're, you really are, in my view, you really are an ISP, you know, with, to the dorm. But it sounds like in this, in this particular case, at least, you know, they, they have, uh, they have some additional responsibility. I don't know if that's a contractual responsibility or a good faith or, or, or what? I, I don't know. Um, the other the other point that Lone Jeeper brought up is the faculty, which you kind of mentioned, and he, he or she mentioned or calls them unfireable. And uh, you know, I think the the issue there is you've got you have these faculty members who will, I guess, they have a lot of latitude in disputing any kind of control as a uh, an oppression of their academic freedom. Which I'm not exactly sure because uh, Lone Jeeper brings up the point about the 15-minute idle lockout being apparently uh, having taken a lot of political capital to get through uh, because apparently 15-minute idle lockouts uh, suppress academic freedom. I I guess I and I bet eight you know ten character passwords probably suppress academic freedom too and and. Probably VPNs do, and web filtering to block out the. Yeah, those probably all violate academic freedom. I'm thinking. Um, I think conceptually, I'm thinking like a little tiny island where all of your important crap has to live, and everything else is hostile. Uh, the faculty is hostile. The students are hostile. The the faculty computers are hostile. The everything is untrusted, untrustworthy. You've got to figure out how to you know how how do you trust them? Uh, but then you get to the point you get you have the problem. Well, apparently that's going to restrict their academic freedom and the uh, the I guess what what would be the equivalent of executives at the school apparently are going to overrule you and. God damn, I don't know what to do. This is... Yeah, I don't know that I'm qualified to even comment on this. It's a tough one. Uh, it's, out of my, it's out of my realm of experience to a decent extent. Um, update your resume, run away screaming. I, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, uh, Martin Fisher calls that a, what's he called, a resume generating experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good question. I just don't know that I have a good answer, and I, I apologize for that. I, I don't either, and I've thought about it since uh, since I got this, and I just, not none of the normal guidance works, and because because every time you every time you start poke you know proposing something it is going to get overruled because you it's it's always going to intersect with uh you know with with someone's freedom or ease of use and 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 that's necessarily so it's it's the trade-off and there's just not a good a good answer so anyhow um that's that derbycon is coming up if you're a listener and you're going to derbycon Look us up. We're going to have a table. Apparently, it's in the bar, though. 
Um, that's true. That's true. Some, somebody asked me if we were going to have a table, and apparently uh, we decided yes, but it's going to be in the bar. So I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, I just want to point out that the last time you and I took a road trip together was September 10th, 2001. That is a fine point. Uh, I would short the entire stock market. That's right. That's wow. Right. Yep. I had forgotten about that. Yep. Wow. Well, <laughs> hey, you know, we got to keep it interesting, right? That's right. That's right. Anyhow, uh, I think that's a podcast. And uh, with that, we will uh, we'll, we will talk to you again next week. Uh, in the interim, if you have any ideas, any feedback, uh, whatever, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find back episodes, show notes, links to the stories we talk about on the website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter uh, at defensive sec, you can follow Mr. Callan on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at malicious link. By the way, Twitter is a really good resource for security people to get news. Highly recommend it. Uh, and with that, we will talk again next week. Hopefully, we'll see you at DerbyCon and take care. Bye.